Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 302, uh, Pop Culture History, and we're going to be talking today about the Great Depression and some of the pop culture that came out of it. Now, I do need to warn you already, um, you might have noticed there are no like clips or anything aside from the reading <clears throat> on, um, on Moodle. Uh, that's because I put a lot of the clips in the PowerPoint. So if you look at the PowerPoint, there will be various YouTube clips. I would highly recommend you watch them. Uh, well, most of them are movies you might be familiar with. Some of them you might not be, but they're all worth a watch. So if you're unfamiliar with the Great Depression, the Great Depression was a severe economic downturn that happened in the United States starting around 1929 and lasting into World War II. I mean, by the time we get to the late 30s, things have improved a little bit. It's not really that the uh, buildup for World War II really makes the country significantly better. Now, you know, whenever... <clears throat> Whenever Her, uh, not Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover was the president during when it began. Whenever Franklin Roosevelt becomes president, uh, as part of his New Deal initiative, he starts bringing in all sorts of different ideas, all sorts of different programs to basically help Americans put them back to work, but also make the Great Depression more tolerable. It doesn't really end it; it just makes it more tolerable. And that's something I want you to be thinking about today. We talked about that a little bit last week in our discussion. Well, those of you here in person. The idea that in a time of crisis, you know, when things are bad, you're going to want escape. You're going to want to want something uh, to get your mind off the bad situation. Like, you know, binge watching Netflix right now. It's something we do basically to help us out while we're going through something really tough. Likewise, if you do the reading, you're going to see how this idea that, you know, a sense of loss is pervasive in a lot of the movies during the 1930s, uh, particularly when it comes to the idea of a loss of hope. The loss of home, the loss of a thing that you uh, that you have lost, the, the loss of your your security, your safety, a place where you feel warm and accepted. Uh, they talk about several movies in the article. I'm going to be talking about many of them today in this little presentation. Uh, I don't talk about It's a Wonderful Life, but you can read about that. So as part of the New Deal, um, one of the one of the agencies that's come into being is the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA. Now, the WPA does a lot of different things, mainly doing with building, uh, mainly doing with construction. They start building, like, every courthouse they possibly can across the country, uh, new roads, new bridges, basically trying to hire people, put them to work for the government, doing things to improve. Uh, you know, the in interior of the United States infrastructure for the good of all Americans. Now, they also do, and this is important to remember, they also start hiring some artists, and they also start hiring artists and various other, um, you know, intellectuals, writers, to do things also to help the country. Come up with a lot of different things. Uh, for instance, for writers and historians, they do these slave narratives, where basically they interview people who are now much older, uh, who were former slaves, or children when they were slaves, and now they're much older, interview them about their lives as slaves. But for art, they start hiring a lot of different artists to paint murals and things like that. It's very common in a lot of these WPA buildings to have a mural done by an artist, basically as a job, something for them to do. Uh, if you go over a slide, well, you'll see the, the WPA logo. Go over one more, you're going to see one of these works of art. It's a very, it's a mural. It's very, uh, very distinct. Uh, it's sense of art. It's very uh, folksy, very um, labor, you know, centric. The idea that they're showing people working. 
this is this kind of agrarian works uh, work centered society for the United States. This type of ideal, uh, fairly modern for the 1930s too. It's not very classical art. It's very new art that you see. Uh, this is the type of style you're going to see in a lot of WPA buildings. Uh, I wish there was a nice WPA building on campus I could show this to. Um, at LSU, I know where I was for a while, uh, they have several of these buildings. Uh, for instance, the building I was in, uh, Himes Hall, which is right next to the library, was a WPA building. You can go down in, in the lobby and see a plaque that says it's a WPA building. And then the English Hall across the hall, they've got a beautiful large mural just in this style. It's not quite this mural, but that same sort of artistic style, the WPA style. So you're, you're having right now the federal government, who beforehand didn't really do too much of this, really investing money in art. The idea that this is something good for the, uh, the country, good for America. It's an example of state culture. Uh, the United States is doing state culture. However, this is a little bit more um, artistic, as I'd say. Uh, not as broad, not as broad as something like a flag or a national anthem, but this is still very much state culture you have here. So, like I said, the United States is now getting more directly involved with state culture, uh, hiring artists to do this as part of Great Depression relief. Now, there's still plenty of other things not done by the government that are quite big. Uh, for instance, radio, which you heard about last class, uh, it gets considerably larger in the 1930s. Um, in the 1920s, it's more of a proof of concept. We talked about that quite a bit with early recording. By the time we get to the 30s, radios become seen as pretty much necessities. Uh, a lot more people are listening to the radio. A lot more people are regularly tuning in. A lot more people own radios, even though they're fairly expensive and seen as a luxury device. Uh, the idea that this sort of entertainment is a necessity during such a hard time. The fact that unlike a record player, you can get so much more music, you know, theoretically infinite amounts of music for the same amount of money. You also start having a real spread in genres, different type of radio shows. Uh, still, It is still mainly music, but now you're having more specialized music, more specialized radio shows, more radio comedies, radio dramas. They start coming a lot more. Uh, one of the more common ways that radio is used, if you go over one slide, you'll, you're going to see Franklin Roosevelt posing behind a desk with a bunch of microphones. Um, he was known for his quote-unquote fireside chats. This is a very staged photograph. He never actually recorded like that. They normally record in a much smaller room. But Franklin Roosevelt gives these quote-unquote fireside chats where he gets on the radio and talks to Americans about what's going on in the Great Depression. It's seen as something really, really reassuring, really something to keep people calm, keep people, you know, even keeled during the Great Depression. Now, that doesn't happen with the War of the World's radio broadcast in 1938. Uh, still in the Great Depression, kind of the tail end of the Great Depression. Uh, done by a man by the name of Orson Welles. Orson Welles is, I think, a distant cousin of H.G. Wells, the guy who actually wrote um, the original book of War of the Worlds. Um, Orson Welles in this time period, he's very young. He's super young in this time period. He's uh, in charge of the Mercury Theater, which is his own little radio company. Uh, he does various plays, various dramas on the radio. Like I said, he's super young. I think he's in his very early 20s in this time period. And he decides he is going to place, uh, put out a radio adaptation of the H.G. Wells book, War of the Worlds, uh, it's, which is about an alien invasion. It's about an alien invasion coming to the uh, United States. And he does this theoretically as a, um, as a drama. It's done on Halloween night, uh, actually the night before Halloween, Halloween Eve, so October 30th. He does this presentation. There is plenty of disclaimers beforehand. That, you know, this is a dramatization, this is not real. 
But the way he does it is basically he starts out with just playing music for a while. And then every so often it's like, oh, here's a radio bulletin. Um, you know, something's landed near New Jersey. You know, we go to somebody in New Jersey and they talk about how it's, you know, the aliens come out and they start shooting people and killing people. And if you actually listen to it, if you actually listen to it, it's pretty clear this is a fake. There's only about a five to ten, ten minute portion where it's like within the realm of possibility. Because like once he gets to the end, he talks about how this person's the only person alive left on Earth. It's not exactly real time. Still a radio drama. This results in scaring the crippity crap out of a lot of different Americans. There is hysteria about this. Uh, there's hysteria about like you know people thinking there's a real alien invasion. Perhaps it's a it's the end of the world. If you go over one slide, you will see from the Boston uh, Globe headline: Radio play terrifies nation. Mars invasion thought real. Hysteria grips folk listening to late. Many feel word world coming to the end. So you see right now, you know, even in a time where people are trying to find some sort of calmness, you know, with the fireside chats, they're okay. They're also capable of being totally petrified. I mean, in fact, it's probably because of the depression that people felt that this whole world of the worlds thing was somewhat plausible. I mean, honestly, you've probably heard the joke so far about 2020. If, if there was an alien invasion in 2020, you probably wouldn't be too surprised about it. You'd be like, yeah, what do you know? By the way, anybody listening to this after 2020, there was a bad pandemic in 2020, a lot of other stuff that happened that was weird. <laughs> so that's going on with, with radio. Like I said, radio is getting much more popular. It's a very common experience uh, for people to listen to in their homes. Um, home is a very important concept in the Great Depression. You'll, you'll read all about it whenever we do this. Uh, that said, though, let's focus on Hollywood. Hollywood is our main focus today. We're kind of continuing on with the movie thing. Uh, this entire class isn't about movies, but uh, there's a lot of movies. I'm not going to lie. Movies are something pretty important in American society. A lot of pop culture to them. Now, ironically, although there's an economic downturn, this is Hollywood's golden age. This is when Hollywood is seen at its height. Uh, the studio system is is at its at total zeta. It, it's very popular, very powerful. Uh, they're spending a lot more money. Uh, more people spend the dough in the Great Depression to go to movies than pretty much any other time in U.S. history. So even though there's an oppression going on, people are spending what money they have a lot of times going to movies. Now, movies do change in 1930, right after the Great Depression. Uh, there had been a series of basic things about the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code was a code for movies after 1930. Uh, started doing some early ratings, but also trying to ensure that movies were clean. Uh, movies were not too violent. Movies were not too sexual. That was a big one. Uh, movies were not glamorizing, um, you know, any, you know, deviant behavior. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about the early movies, the idea that, you know, certain behavior needs to be shown, uh, particularly comes to relationships, particularly comes with violence. Uh, they're okay with some depictions of like, um, you know, ethnic stereotypes. In fact, they're very okay with uh, a lot of racist stuff, but anything that's like overly violent, overly sexual or deemed pornographic, for instance, um, is not allowed to be shown. There's a lot of films that we don't know about from before 1930. Um, honestly, about 90% of all silent films uh, were destroyed uh, just because of time. And, and you know, they, they, they were destroyed over the time. They kind of wasted away because the film was very fragile. It was very, you know, they were not preserved particularly well. But we also have other banned films from before 1930 that are um, banned because they're seen as very violent or sexual to the point of being pornographic. So, um, you know, don't, don't think that they invented sex in the 70s or anything. Like, there's plenty of stuff going on beforehand. But the Hayes Code makes it a lot cleaner, um, you know, supposedly more family-friendly. And you have, like I said, more people going to the movies in the Great Depression 
like on a regular basis than any other time in American history. It's seen as cheap entertainment. Uh, it's cheap escapism. Uh, this is, for instance, when movie theaters start giving away popcorn. Uh, they start having popcorn in movies during the Great Depression. It was seen as a cheap food stuff. The idea that you could buy a movie ticket and get popcorn because popcorn is dirt cheap. If you don't know popcorn is cheap, it's super cheap to make. Uh, you can make it for very cheap. Now, granted, the theater now, it's not the cheapest thing on the menu. It's like 12 bucks for a vat of popcorn, but whatever. Well, you can't get popcorn nowadays anyway because there's a pandemic going on. A lot of different movies come out during the uh, 1930s. A lot of them do talk about escapism. A lot of them do talk about the concept of home as well. The first one I want to talk about is King Kong. If you go over one side, you're going to see King Kong. It's from 1933, uh, starring Fay Ray as the blonde and a big monkey as the big monkey. Um, this movie is the first real, I mean, there are other dinosaur movies. There's like Gertie the Dinosaur. You have other monster movies as well. I mean, there's plenty of horror movies, as we talked about last class. Things like Phantasmagoria. You know, the, horror is some of the first genres out there. But this is the first, quote-unquote, real monster movie. I mean, the Universal Monsters also come about in this time period. Your Frankensteins, your Draculas, your, uh, mummies. But this is like a brand new American creation the idea of this giant gorilla who lives uh, at an island in the Pacific by a bunch of savages. Um, it's one of the, also one of the first real great quote-unquote special effects movies because the monkey is done by stop-motion action. Basically, they make like a puppet of the monkey, like out of not quite clay, but like, you know, this type of malleable material. They take a shot of him that acts as an animation, animation cell. They move it a little bit, take another one. They speed it all together. It looks like he's moving around. Um, fairly famous. If you go over one side, you're going to see, you know, King Kong on top of the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building had just been completed. Uh, if you watch the clip, remember, uh, you need to watch the clips here. Uh, you're going to see King Kong, the very famous climactic scene at the end, wherever he, he scales the Empire State Building with Fay Ray and ultimately gets shot down by a bunch of airplanes. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see King Kong's face. Like I said, this is a special effects feature. Even though this is a black and white movie, uh, when... Color movies are starting to come around very slowly, very um, garishly at first. Uh, this is a black and white movie. It is seen as a special effects, um, just over-the-top special effects spectacular. Uh, something like nowadays, like an Avatar or a Marvel movie or something, where it's like, oh my gosh, look at all the special effects. Uh, if you watch it now, you're going to be like, wow, those special effects aren't very good. But remember, this is a different time with a different movie. Uh, so that is King Kong, very famous film, uh, kind of gets into the escapism of like, hey, we're going to go to a foreign place, see, uh, you know, these savages who control this monkey person. Well, he's not a person. He's just a straight up giant ape. Uh, a little bit of a titillating thing about like, you know, you know, this, this monkey falls in love with this beautiful blonde woman, Faye Ray. You know, what's going to happen with that? Uh, the special effects of the airplanes getting him. Uh, it's a long movie. Um. The, the climactic scene at the end is pretty much just at the end. The rest of the movie is very long. I know Peter Jackson, the guy who did Lord of the Rings, made the uh, made a remake of it. Uh, probably when y'all were little, but for me it was when I was in college. So probably when y'all were five or six years old. Uh, very long movie. Very long movie. The action of the end is only at the very end. Now by the time we get to the later 1930s, um, color had gotten better, particularly with one particular sequence called Technicolor. Uh, Technicolor was able to render color in movies. However, it was done very, very brightly, uh, very much uh, in a very fantastic way. Fantastic in the sense of large or immense, 
or not very uh, realistic, if that makes sense. Not very realistic, over and above, fanciful, overly colorful. Uh, the example I want to talk to you about is Robin Hood, starring Errol Flint, The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938. If you ever get a chance to watch this one, this is a fabulous movie. It, it holds up very well, I think. Uh, it stars Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. Errol Flynn was the classic swashbuckling, uh, real movie star, movie star, like um, I guess George Clooney is the closest we get to nowadays, but just like he's the leading man, he's he's good looking, very acrobatic, very you know, strong, uh, athletic, this sort of individual. Um, he just totally, he owns this role as Robin Hood. In my mind, he is the definitive Robin Hood. It's it's very garish when you when you see clips of it. Uh, if you watch the clip of it, it shows, you know, the um, the famous arrow scene where it's basically Robin Hood is in the uh, archery contest. Notice the, the, the costumes, all the colors are just over and above, fanciful, just unrealistic. You know, even though it's in color, it's not like any color you're ever going to see on this earth. Uh, other members of the cast that are interesting, uh, Basil Rathbone plays, uh, plays one of the main villains. Uh, Basil Rathbone would later on play... Um, Sherlock Holmes and a gazillion BBC things. But in this one, he is just chewing the scenery, being like overly and above villainous. Uh, the leading lady, Maid Marian, uh, know this actress because she's going to be showing up a little bit later, Olivia de Havilland, uh, she just died. She just died about a month or two ago in July. Uh, she was 104 when she died. She was a classic Hollywood leading lady, you know, just very, uh, very glamorous, very... Um, you know, just one of those classic Hollywood beauty types or whatever. She she was in a million different pictures. She made it to she was 104 years old. She plays Maid Marian in this super, you know, just old school Hollywood glamour. This is like the old school Hollywood glamour movie. Just a fun, true swashbuckling film. Uh, she is in a, it, later on we find out she is in a romantic relationship with Errol Flynn, who is married at this time period. Uh, he claims that he will leave his wife for her. Um, it's not, it's not actually really romantic. They're just very close friends. Uh, he claims he's going to leave his wife for her, but she's like, no, don't do it. Uh, they probably could have gotten together. They probably should have gotten together, but just classic old school Hollywood. The thing I want you to think about whenever you watch this clip, it's very over the top, you know, it, it's, it's escapist, but it's also kind of comfort food. It's comfort food will also be fantastic. Because Robin Hood, this was not the first Robin Hood movie ever made. There's tons of Robin Hood movies out there. Uh, there have been tons of silent Robin Hood movies out there. Uh, tons of stage productions of Robin Hood. Robin Hood is a very well-known character. He's a very well-known character. People know the story. You know, there's really nothing too unusual in this. They don't really subvert the story or anything. It's a very classic depiction of the classic Robin Hood story. But it's almost like comfort food. It's like, I want to watch something I know just done to 11. You know, done so fantastic with giant sets and garish colors. I mean, if you look at, you know, right there, you got Will. Okay, that picture of Robin Hood, Will Scarlet, and I think that's Little John. You know, Little John's got the yellow tights. Will Scarlet's over and above in red. You know, they're just kind of flaunting this new technology. This idea that, hey, we've now got color film and we can go over and above with his exaggeration. Now, you also have about the exact opposite of this in The Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath you're going to read about. Uh, the Grapes of Wrath was a 1939 book about the Great Depression itself. Uh, notice this is later than Robin Hood, but it's in black and white. That is, uh, that is done on purpose. It's done on purpose basically to talk about the movie being in black and white, showing the disparity of the Joad family, a bunch of Okies who are doing really bad in the Great Depression, 
The book is written by John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck is an interesting character. Uh, he's originally from rural California, which is very much reflected in his works, which are mainly centered around at California. Uh, works around mainly around agriculture and ecology, kind of an environmentalist for the time. Uh, he does have some leftist leanings, particularly in regards to workers over ownership. Uh, he's one of these people who feels that the Great Depression is made worse because people are focusing on ownership over workers. And he's like, no, the workers need to be placed more important. Uh, very felt in his writings. Now, during the Great Depression, uh, just in broad, California was looked upon as an agricultural utopia. The idea that people from Oklahoma, people from all over the country are coming to California because they hear there's work. And Steinbeck was writing to say, kind of basically, sorry, folks, there's deep problems here, too. Your problems aren't going to be changed uh, by a change in location. They're not going to be solved by a change in location. Uh, the you know, Grapes of Wrath is about the Joad family. They moved to California uh, after the Dust Bowl impacts uh, Oklahoma. Uh, this story is very rich in allegory, particularly the biblical kind. Lots of biblical allegory in here. Highly critical of the nature of capitalism. Uh, to the extent that after Steinbeck writes this, he gets accused of being a communist, gets a lot of death threats, even though his other works are actually fairly critical of communism. Um, basically, if Steinbeck does have an overall thesis, it, it, it sucks to be the little guys. His thesis, and you're going to be screwed over by everybody. So the main Joad is Tom, who at the beginning of the story is released from prison after a homicide conviction. He goes with his parents and other family members from Oklahoma to California, along with Casey, uh, a preacher who lost his faith uh, because of the suffering. They make it to California. They get hung up on labor issues. Ultimately, Casey is killed because he's starting to organize a union, and Tom kills the attacker. Since Tom will be arrested, he flees, but telling his mother that he'll give up fighting for the little guy. It's not a fun novel. It's certainly not escapism. It's controversial, but it does get optioned into filming. Now, why does an admittedly depressing tale about reality get turned into a movie? Well, carefully. <laughs> the story was popular. There was a story that it was popular. There were, however, accusations that the movie was pro-communist. The plot was pro-communist, which was a real fear during the Great Depression. If the U.S. ever were to tip towards communism, it would have been um, during the Great Depression. So the studio investigated basically to find out if the plight of the Okies was really that bad, if the Great Depression really was that bad. Uh, when it came back that there was no hyperbole, they moved on cautiously. Uh, the problem is Hollywood, even in this time period, which we talked about last class, uh, Hollywood has got the stigma of being nothing but a bunch of godless leftists. And there are fears that making such a movie would like try to tip the country towards communism or it would come back to blowback on Hollywood. So the way to kind of combat a lot of these accusations is to get a Western director who's super right-wing named John Ford. John Ford is known as being a super right-wing guy in his politics. Um, another way they do it um, is they change the ending and the story somewhat. Uh, the movie rearranges the story beats to be a little bit more hopeful and a little bit more populist, oddly enough. It isn't explicitly said why Tom Joad goes to prison. For instance, in the movie, in the book, it said it's, it's for murder. Also, Mom Joad has a larger role as real. And there's also a monologue that they say at the end saying why the little picture, why the little people are going to survive. Um, it's a critical darling, respectable box office. Does okay at the, ox, the um, box office. Uh, it's more of a vegetables movie in this time period. Uh, something you're not supposed to watch for entertainment's sake, but because you feel like you need to. Uh, these also kind of pub up during hard times. This wasn't the most popular one in the Great Depression. It was critically acclaimed. It does. It's not like it does terrible at the box office, but it's not. It's not the one that like people want to go see. One that people do want to go see, uh, and actually, this is not the biggest movie in this time period. It's not as big as you think it might be during the time period. Sorry, my chair squeaky. Is the Wizard of Oz? 
Uh, the Wizard of Oz was made in 1939. It was based upon a much older book by L. Frank Baum from 1900. Uh, this was not the first depiction of the Wizard of Oz, not by any stretch. There were numerous, and I mean numerous, movies of the Wizard of Oz before 1939. Um, a lot of them are lost, but a lot of them still exist. There's a lot of silent movies, cartoons, things like that. Um, of the Wizard of Oz. By this time, I believe the Wizard of Oz was in like the public domain or like they didn't have to pay too much for the rights. Uh, this was very much seen as a triumph of the studio system. Um, the studio system, basically you have these big studios come up, your MGMs, your United Artists, your Paramounts. They, they come into being, uh, pretty much they hire an actor. They do several different movies with them. They hire writers. Have, the writers do movies. They hire directors. It's kind of like a one-stop shop. Basically, you know, if you're an actor, you're assigned to one studio. You do three or four pictures for them a year. That's how it works. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, they did not know it was going to be a very special production at first. They just figure it's going to be another um, another escapist. Uh, this is like the Lord of the Rings of its time, based off of a fantasy novel that was very popular. It is directed primarily by Victor Fleming. Uh, that name's going to become important in a little bit. But there's a lot of different directors. I say primarily directed by Victor Fleming, but there's as many as five different directors that are doing it. Five different directors are going through this this film. Uh, the, the show itself is very stage-like. It's also very dreamlike, particularly in the use of Technicolor. It's almost like a combination of Robin Hood and uh, Grapes of Wrath because the beginning of the film is Kansas. It's in black and white. It's all dusty. It's depressing. You know, for Dorothy, she feels trapped there. But then she, she gets a chance in a, in, a, in a cyclone to go to the magical world of Oz and look at that. Oh, my gosh. My goodness. It's all in beautiful Technicolor. You know, I, you got a couple clips of The Wizard of Oz, stuff you've seen before. Uh, you know, they show Kansas in black and white. Then she goes to, to Munchkin Land, and you'll see her, you know, following the Yellow Brick Road. Just notice how large that set is. You know, you have hundreds, if not thousands, of little people in really garish costumes, uh, making this, you know, this, this big stage production. Like I said, it's very stage-like in its production and construction. Uh, almost done like a theater play. If you notice, it's done like in scenes, very little cross-cuts. The narrative is very easily done. It's like, you know, we have a, we have a new, we make, we get to a new location, meet a new character, they do a song. It's, it's like a musical, but it's very fantastically done. Now, in this time, it's not the biggest hit. Uh, it's, it's, it's a respectable hit. It's not the biggest film in the world. Uh, it becomes much bigger and much more uh, popular later, particularly when television comes around. It's a movie that becomes really well-known once television comes around uh, for something to watch on TV done fairly cheaply. That said, though, once again, you get escapism. The fact that the entire plot of The Wizard of Oz is Dorothy trying to return home. You know, there's no place like home. Clap your ruby slippers. Even though you're, you're somewhere fantastic, we want to go back to the place we once were. We can go on and on about The Wizard of Oz. We'll talk about it in class quite a bit. Like I said, this wasn't the biggest film of the time. Um, it was respectable, but it wasn't the biggest. Now, the biggest film of the Great Depression, the biggest film ever made adjusted for inflation, is this next one called Gone with the Wind, which ironically also comes out the same year as Wizard of Oz. 1939 is a pretty good year for famous films, and it's also the biggest movie of the 30s. In fact, you could argue, adjusted for inflation, it's the biggest movie of all time. 
Uh, it is based on a 1936 novel by Margaret Mitchell. Uh, it's a novel that comes out a couple years before you know the film. It, of course, of course, the novel comes first. Um, it's it's kind of a fantasy about about the old South, you know, about the Civil War and Reconstruction, and the plight of a, of a, of a plucky you know young girl named uh, named Scarlett O'Hara, and you know, will she ever get the love of her life? Who all is she going to marry? Uh, she's not exactly the most sympathetic character in the world. In fact, she's um, she's kind of horrible, really. She's a uh, <laughs> She's a she's a she's a Spitfire. I'll give her that. But uh, Scarlett O'Hara is a terrible person. Now, like I said, this was written by Margaret Mitchell. Margaret Mitchell is a writer in this time period. Um, she bases this off like a couple plantations she's been around to. Uh, it's very much a glorification of the old South. Uh, very much kind of this idea that the Civil War lost cause. Not quite as racist as Birth of a Nation. I mean, there are still some problematic depictions. Uh, but for instance, I, the clan isn't as like overtly the heroes here. Um, when the novel comes out, it's the biggest novel of the thirties. Like this is a huge novel. Everybody's ready to get North and South. It gets option to a film. It was to be the biggest and most expensive production of all time when it was made. Uh, other productions have long since surpassed it, but at the time it was to be the biggest movie ever made, just like super big, super broad, super, 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 super expensive. Now, the production itself is fraught with complications. Uh, there were all sorts of problems, like making the sets, getting things filmed. Uh, there was directing problems. There was acting problems. Uh, very complicated uh, filming. Unlike something like Wizard of Oz, which actually you know had a lot of different directors, but uh, it went pretty smoothly. Uh, same thing with like Robin Hood. Uh, this one, you know, the, the production of it was almost as good of a story as the movie itself. Uh, casting was headlined by Clark Gable. Clark Gable, another classic leading man. Uh, classic leading man. He's just, you know, good-looking cat. Um, you know, charming, debonair, just good-looking dude. Uh, there was a big Hollywood search for who's going to become Scarlett O'Hara. They, they ultimately go with Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee, she's an English act, actress. She's from England. Uh, but she gets the part of the ultimate Southern Belle, Scarlett O'Hara. Um, it was directed by Victor Fleming, the same guy who directed most of um, Wizard of Oz. It was a very expensive process. It was very, very, very expensive. The sets were ginormous. They had thing, problems with things burning. They did all this stuff on location. It was a nightmare. Uh, when it came out, it smashed box office records and also Oscar records. It won more Oscars than any other Oscar up to that point time period. And adjusted for inflation, it's still the highest-grossing movie of all time. Uh, another person who's in the cast is Olivia de Homeland, the same person who was in, the person who was made Mar made Marion in uh, Robin Hood. She is the co-lead. She is Melanie. She's the she's the second biggest lady part in this entire show. Um, you know, basically the story of Gone with the Wind and Scarlett O'Hara is terrible, and <laughs> she wants to marry Ashley or the guy she's obsessed with, but he wants to marry his cousin because. That's a thing back then. Uh, his cousin is Melanie, and then Rhett Butler's around. That's Clark Gable. Ultimately, she ends up marrying like three different dudes. Uh, she's trying to keep her plantation together even after the Civil War and during Reconstruction. Uh, if you see the um, if you see the, the the picture right there, you'll see you know Gone with the Wind. There they is. There's Clark Gable and uh, Vivian Lee. The very famous picture, you know, of Atlanta in flames, and he's holding her in a very provocative pose. Uh, also, this is fairly famous because it broke the Hades Code because it allowed profanity. It was one of the first uh, famous uses of profanity after the Hades, uh, after Hades Code was put in. Uh, 
Uh, because basically he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which is a very famous line in the book. They were going to change it because it was profane. However, they said, you know what? It's so important of a line. That's that. couple of clips. You don't have to watch all the clips. It's just, you know, I just wanted to see how big the production is, but also how appealing this is to you Americans. You know, it's, it's kind of going back into that warm hug of history. You know, the idea that we're going back to nostalgia, going back to the way, th- way things used to be. You know, this is a hard time, too. The Civil War was definitely a hard time. But we're going back to that happy hug, seeing what's going on in America. Now, another actress in this movie I want you to know about is Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel is an African-American woman who plays the character of Mammy. If you go over one slide, you'll see Mammy. Uh, Mammy is hilarious in this movie. Uh, she's just a fun character. Uh, she's a slave, and she's sassy, and she talks back to Scarlet. Uh, basically, this, the whole shtick is basically her saying, like, oh, Scarlet, you're, you're stupid. Uh, you know, she's talking back a little bit. But it's also a very problematic portrayal. Um, Hattie McDaniel does indeed receive an Oscar for this performance. If you go over one slide, you'll see Hattie McDaniel with her Oscar. She's very uh, proud of this Oscar. She's the first black woman to ever get an Oscar. However, that itself is problematic because it was a segregated thing. She was the first black woman ever to get an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. She was not allowed to sit in the ceremony. In fact, whenever the film premiered in Atlanta, she was not allowed to sit in the theater um, with the rest of the cast. She had to go to the balcony. And at, at first, they were not going to even let her in until um, Clark Gable said, no, if you, if you don't let her in, I, I'm, I'm not going to show up. Basically saying, it's stupid that this happens. Now, although the movie is very, you know, famous, it's very popular, it's, you know, it, you know it's, it's, it's not a... <laughs> It's a racist movie. I'm not going to deny that. But, I mean, the character of Mammy is pretty funny, and she's very sassy. And, you know, it's it's a little bit of a subversion of the old slave stereotypes. Uh, a lot more of the depictions of African Americans in Gone with the Wind are pretty much reaffirming old racist stereotypes of African Americans. Uh, if you watch the clip right there, you will see Hattie McDaniel as Mammy talking smack to Scar- Scarlet. You know, speaking back to her master in a way that a slave ordinarily would not. But some of the other depictions of slaves in Gone with the Wind are problematic. Also, Hattie McDaniel gets some criticism from the NAACP, which exists in this time period, uh, basically for not being um, a good role model. You know, the idea that, you know, yes, she's a black woman, but she's portraying a a slave. You know, why is she getting this sort of thing? Why why are all the roles for black people in movies uh, being subservient? Which is something you're going to see. If you see black people in a movie in this time period, particularly in these big films, uh, they're probably being slaves or are not getting leading roles. There are no leading, I mean, Manny is probably the biggest role an African-American woman had ever gotten in any film, a major film up in this time period. Uh, you do have uh, films, uh, filmed with black cast. They're very, very not that often done. Much smaller budget. They don't get nearly the wide release. And a lot of these films do, not just Gone with the Wind, but a lot of different these films really lean upon racial stereotypes. A lot of racial stereotypes in their depictions of African-Americans. Remember, you go for a broad comedy. Stereotypes are something that's pretty broad, and some people like stereotypes in this time period. Now, she gets a lot of criticism from the NAACP saying, hey, you're not really elevating African-Americans. You're not good for representation. Uh, Her comeback to that is basically, look, I could either be a maid for $5 a week, or I could play a maid and get like $1,500 a week. You know, would I rather, you know, be an actual maid and get paid $5 or act like I'm a maid and get like a few thousand dollars? And she's like, you know, I live in a fancy house. I'm able to get all this stuff because I acted like a maid. You know, I'm getting paid. Isn't that good for African-Americans, too? I'm African-American as well, even though I'm being a 
a negative depiction. So that kind of goes into this. Now, the head of the NAACP in this time period is Walter White, uh, shown there on the left in the white suit. Uh, that is Walter White. He is the head of the NAACP in this time period. Uh, if you notice, he is a very light complexion, and that was something else Hattie McDaniel talked about, is basically what gives you the right uh, to say that I'm not being black enough, where basically you're supposedly representing African Americans and you're a quadroon or something, and you're incredibly light-complected, and you're living, quote-unquote, a white life. If you see some of these pictures of him, I like the one at the end. That's him and his family, him with his daughters, uh, and his dog. I love that dog. This was a good picture of a dog. You know, this idea that, you know, yes, it's respectable. Yes, you're doing good depictions of African Americans, but, you know, there's accusations of colorism as a part of that. The idea that, you know, if you're a lighter-skinned African American, you're of better class or something, as opposed to something like Hattie McDaniels, Who's of a much darker complexion? And you get into these attributes of the Depression. But in all, in all, the Great Depression is really a time where you see escapism. This idea of home being something of very utmost importance. Pretty much all these films we talked about today have home as a major centerpiece. You're going to read more about that. And that's what I want you to be thinking about this. You know, as we go through a time of trouble right now with the coronavirus, how is the entertainment you're, you're consuming what sort of messages are you trying to give? What sort of things do you want to be reinsured by? For that, this is Dr. Tully talking a little bit about the Great Depression and 